Chapter Three of the Egregious English by T. W. H. Crossland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three: The Man of Business. The English, all the world has heard, are a nation of shopkeepers. They are understood to keep shop and to glory in it. They have kept shop with the other nations for customers ever since international shopkeeping became a possibility in the beginning one is afraid their notion of shopkeeping ran neither to fair trade nor honest dealing but gradually there has built up a system of commercial equity the main principle of which was the protection of one shopkeeper against another and the security of shopkeepers generally in course of time the english man of business arose he had a silk hat and expansive manners he lived in a suburb and read the times on his way to business in the morning all day at his office he would cheat no man and his word was as good as his bond his office day was a day of quite ten hours and during those ten hours he sweated like the proverbial nigger at nights he retired to his suburb and with the wife and children whom he kept there ate to repletion from the joint washed it down with sherry and port supplied to him by merchants of the type of the late mr ruskin's father and hey presto by eleven of the clock he was deep among the feathers twice on sundays he went to church and held the plate to sunday's midday dinner he invited the vicar or a curate and there was always beef and batter pudding and improving talk not to mention cabbage and an extra special glass of wine sir other recreations the english man of business had none save and except perhaps an occasional saturday afternoon drive in a hired chaise with mrs man of business and the children and a still more occasional visit to the theatre in the long run by the practice of these virtues he amassed wealth he put his money into good bottoms he owed no man a penny and as he never robbed anybody and always lived miles within his income he had a conscience so easy that it seemed to sleep everybody respected him he was in demand to take the chair at the meetings of young men's improvement societies and to explain the secret of his success free gratis and for nothing to the callow young men thereat assembled he would tell you unctuously that he attributed his success one to early rising two to never wasting time the split infinitive was his three to always saving at least one-third of his income four to never going bond for anybody and five to marrying mrs man of business this last of course with a chortle so he wagged along and helped to build up the commercial greatness and probity and honour of his country and when he died he had a magnificent and costly funeral and was attended to his last long home by his weeping relict and sorrowing sons and daughters next day there was an account of mr man of business's obsequies in the local papers and his sons proceeded to carry on the concern that was forty years ago to-day the english man of business is a bird of an entirely different and altogether more entrancing feather indeed it is a question whether he has not ceased to be a man of business at all one might perhaps sum him up best by saying that he has begun to have notions whereas he was once the bulwark of the philistine class he has now gone over lock stock and barrel particularly barrel to the barbarians he lives in the manner style and odour of barbarism and the ruling ambition of his existence is to pass for a county magnet 
a man of birth and leisure rather than for a man of business so that he has entirely laid aside the characteristics which distinguished his early and middle victorian prototype breadth girth weight the substantial the ponderous are not for him he does not attribute his success to early rising he does not boast that his word is his bond he does not slap his sides when he laughs he never went to business on a tramcar in his life and as for his owing all he is to mrs man of business it is to his association with that charming beschiffened and bejeweled little lady that he owes all he owes in other words the new english man of business has made up his mind that if life is to be made tolerable at all it must be made tolerable through social ways that is to say if one's income runs to a couple of thousand a year out of a butter business one must live in precisely the manner of persons whose incomes run to two thousand a year out of lands and hereditaments the glass of fashion and the mould of form for a person who would live is mayfair lords and dukes and the landed gentry have houses in mayfair their wives and female relatives flutter round in flashing equipages and brilliant toilettes there is the theatre the opera and other people's houses in the evening the park on sundays the river in the summer scotland in the autumn and the riviera for the winter and early spring lords and dukes and the landed gentry tread this pretty round and find both pleasure and dignity in it why not the head of the old established firm of margarine sons brothers and company why not indeed old margarine founder of the house never missed a day at the office for forty years young margarine will tell you that after all you know it is rather amusing to drop into the office sometimes and see the fellows sit up all the same the business is a beastly bore and there are moments when he wishes it at the deuce as for mrs margarine mrs man of business the erstwhile portly mother of daughters and the only begetter of her spouse's success really if you saw her in her boudoir in her carriage at prince's at the opera at brighton or at monte carlo you would not recognize her she is young and slim her hair is of flax she has rings on her fingers and probably bells on her toes her diamonds are the envy of duchesses and as for margarine my dear i never think either about it or him my little boys are at eton and dicky is going into the guards sometimes even mr and mrs man of business manage to get presented then as you may say their cup runneth over hand in hand they stand upon their pisgah and stare at the pacific as it were there are no more worlds to conquer they come down with a light upon their faces and margarine sons brothers and company can be hanged in point of fact margarine sons brothers and company sooner or later becomes margarine sons brothers and company limited margarine himself drops out taking with him all the money he can get when he comes to die if you said margarine he would do his best to insult you that is all of course i have taken an extreme case but apparently the desire of the latter-day english man of business is wholly in these directions be he in a great or small way he is fain to step westward he is fain to live as the barbarians and to be indistinguishable from them and rather than be beaten he will enter into that kingdom piecemeal 
surpluses that would have gone to consolidation and extension in the old days now go to personal and feminine expenditure bond street captures what the wise would have dumped into threadneedle street and instead of resting our hope upon the business methods of benjamin franklin and samuel budget our heart inclines to the excellent precepts of our millionaire friend yes indeed which is to say that the english man of business like the english sportsman is dying out of the land whether his loss will be deplored by countless thousands is another question anyway he is going chapter four the journalist i am dealing here with the english journalist because in my opinion after the english sportsman and the english man of business there is nothing under the sun so wonderfully english and so fearfully foolish the elegant and austere writer who gave us the unspeakable scott has said much which he no doubt hoped would lead people to believe that the british press was entirely in the hands of scotsmen and that this accounted at once for its dullness and its continual advertisement of scottish virtues for my own part i have no hesitation in asserting that mr crossland's view of the situation is quite a mistaken one in any case it is obvious that even if fleet street be as mr crossland suggests eaten up with louts from over the border the english journalist is not yet wholly extinct and somewhere in the land the remnant of him stands valiantly to its guns it is well known however that as a fact the remnant very largely outnumbers its hated rival the proportion of scots to the proportion of englishmen on the staffs of most newspapers being probably no higher than as one is to three so that for the stodginess and flat-footedness of the english newspaper the epithets are mr crossland's own the englishman is at least equally to blame with the scot mr crossland's main complaint against the newspaper press of his country is that it lacks brilliance so far as i am aware it has never before been asserted that the function of a newspaper is to be brilliant news is news all over the world to write brilliantly of a dog-fight or of the suicide of a defaulting clerk may be mr crossland's ambition in life but most persons possessing such an ambition would transfer their finical attentions from the field of journalism to that of belletra no doubt if mr crossland had his way the morning papers in which the soul of the average englishman so delighteth would be published from the bodley head or at the sign of the unicorn or haply at mr grant richards it is not my intention however to enter into a sort of ten nights discussion with mr crossland he has had his say and taken the whipping he deserved my business is with the english journalist and while i shall not descend to personalities in dealing with him i hope to show that his brilliance and liveliness and spartness though much vaunted are neither a boon nor a blessing either to journalism as a force or to society at large i think that it may be fairly set down for a fact that the fine flower and consummate expression of english journalism is the halfpenny newspaper at any rate nobody would pretend to find in the halfpenny newspaper the sententious dullness and flat-footedness which are supposed to characterize the journalistic work of the scot the smartness of the halfpenny press is indeed not even american there is but one epithet for it and that is english 
Broadly speaking, its appeal is directly and exclusively to the bathotic. In England, the bathotic has always had the majority in its grip. The majority notoriously has no mind. It is a thing of one emotion, an instrument of one stop. On that stop, the bathotic stop, the English journalist makes a point of playing. There has been a time in his history when he believed in the educative possibilities and duties of his profession. He long held with the Scot that the press was a power, and that it was becoming that it should glory in being a power for the betterment of the race. After many shrewd searchings and commercial gropings, the English journalist discovered that the way to fame and fortune lay in the mastery of the bathotic stock he learned to sing songs of araby in one squalid key every morning and he has since been able to keep a gig and outcirculate everything that considers itself possessed of circulation he has played as one might say old harvey with the daily telegraph he has put the times to the shame of being a journal that nobody reads more than all he has said flatly to the english people you are a rabbit-brained crowd and here for your delectation and your coppers is the worst that can be written for you when england comes to her day of reckoning in the hour when she shall see her own mischance and is fain to remember the names of her destroyers none of them will seem to her so flagrant and so to be deprecated as the english journalist behold she will say the monster who convinced me that it was beautiful to split infinitives that it was elegant to begin six paragraphs on one page with the blessed statement a dramatic scene was enacted in mr thingamabob's court yesterday that good books are to be worthily pronounced upon by sub-editors in the intervals of waiting for the three o'clock winner and that so far from being a reproach to one the bathotic was the only honourable and creditable attitude of mind if a man wish to perceive to what degraded passes the art of writing may come and yet retain the qualities of intelligibility and apparent reasonableness let him peruse the morning papers and die the death the reek and offence of them smells to heaven they are a sure indication of the decadence of the english mind and of the cupidity and unscrupulousness of the english journalist there has been nothing like them nothing to compare with them for cheapness and futility and banality in the history of the world they are more to be fearful of than the pestilence inasmuch as they spell intellectual debasement the corruption of the public taste and the defilement of the public spirit their very literal innocuousness condemns them. It is their boast that they may be read in the family without a blush. Their assumption of morality and puritanical straight-lacedness is admirable. Beneath it there lie a licentiousness of purpose, a disregard for what is just, and a contempt for what is decent, and of good report, which are calculated to make the angels weep when one inquires into the personnel of the staffs by which these papers are run one is confronted with exactly the kind of man one expects to meet first of all he is english and as shallow and flippant and irresponsible as only an englishman can be the saving touch of seriousness does not enter into his composition he neither reads nor thinks 
beer billiards and free lunches free entry to the less edifying places of amusement a minimum of work and a maximum of pay constitute his ideal of the journalist's career and he is always doing his best to live up to it of responsibility to anybody save his immediate chief who after all is only himself at a little higher salary he has not the smallest notion his duty is neither by himself nor by the public all that is expected of him is loyalty to his chief and to his paper and it is his pride and joy that this loyalty is invariably forthcoming very occasionally one hears that in consequence of a change in the political policy of a newspaper the editor of that paper has considered it to be his duty to resign his editorship probably not more than two such resignations have occurred in english journalism during the past twenty years in both instances the self-denying editors have been held up by the english papers as sublime examples of honor and martyrdom that there is nothing extraordinary in sticking to one's principles even though it means loss of livelihood does not appear to have dawned upon the lively english mind of course it will be said that if every member of the staff of a newspaper down even to the junior reporters were allowed to have beliefs and principles and were not expected to write anything in antagonism to them an exceedingly remarkable kind of newspaper would result compromise at any rate on established matters must be the rule of the journalist's life on the other hand i incline to the opinion that the english journalist is far too swift to acquiesce in doubtful procedure and that where the morals good report and high character of a paper are concerned it is better to have a scotch staff than an english one nothing is more characteristic of the english journalist of to-day than the circumstance that he is literally without opinions of his own he takes his opinions from his chiefs just as his chiefs take their opinions from their proprietors or from the wire pullers with whose party the paper happens to be associated in a sense it is impossible that it should be otherwise yet you will find that in the main scottish journalists do have opinions of their own and that somehow they manage to be loyal to them for weal or woe the scot is immovable and unchangeable as the granite of his own hills you can never get him to see that half-measures are either desirable or necessary he will not stretch his conscience nor palter with his soul for any man or any man's money the englishman is all the other way that is why he makes such a nimble and even brilliant journalist End of chapter four